pleasure to be with you here this afternoon on this uh, second Sunday in August. I am grateful to be able to share the preaching place. Uh, as always, our thoughts and prayers are with your pastor, Pastor Jamie Hawkins, as God continues to work <clears throat> in his life, giving him clarity uh, of how God wants to use him and uh, strengthening his physical body. And so uh, I know you echo, echo my sentiment of uh, wanting him uh, to be in the center of God's will and being willing to accept that. And so we have been lifting him up in prayer. Now, my understanding is that the uh, scriptural text today is from the third chapter of Philippians. Uh, you went through uh, a portion of that chapter last Sunday. I was able to catch part of the, um, the sermon last Sunday online. <clears throat> And so I'm just going to pick up uh, from where uh, the sermon ended last week. For your focus of attention, or as one of my uh, mentors used to say, if you need a hitching post upon which to hitch the reins of your mind, let us consider verses 17 of chapter 3 down through uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Uh, you uh, maybe reading from a different translation than mine. I uh, usually use the New American Standard, uh, and if you are reading from a different translation, such as the English Standard, uh, today's Living Version, the, new, uh, the King James or the New King James, uh, the translation of the words will be slightly different, but we will be able to get uh, the gist of what the Spirit is saying to us through the Word of God. Verse 17, brethren... Join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. If you're using the King James, I believe it says, mark those uh, who have walked according to our example. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the, cro of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship or our conversation is in heaven, from whom which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble or lowly state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And this afternoon, for just <clears throat> a few moments, I would just like to speak from the theme of following the right example, of following the right example. Now, this pericope of Scripture, verses 17 of chapter 3 through verses 1 of chapter 4, is a continuation of the thought that Paul began in the preceding verses. In the preceding verses in chapter, in chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 9, he talks about there who we are to watch out for. He starts off by saying, rejoice in the Lord. He says, to write the same things is not burdensome to me. 
He says, beware of those around you. He describes some as dogs. He describes some as circumcision, those who have confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on and he says, now, if anyone has confidence, says, I am, uh, if you want to, he's saying like this, if you want to play that game of boasting in the flesh, I can play that game too. And then he gives his pedigree uh, beginning in verse number five. He talks about circumcised the eighth day. Uh, that was according to the law. You remember that uh, in, in the Mosaic law, the male child uh, that breached the womb was supposed to be dedicated or circumcised to the Lord the eighth day. And we see that in the life of Jesus as his mother and, and Joseph bring him uh, into the temple uh, after, eight, <clears throat> after eight days. He goes on and he talks about more of his pedigree of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to uh, zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness found in the law, he says, found blameless. So he argues his pedigree, but then he goes on and he says, all of that I count as worthless. Uh, the King James Version talks about I count it as dumb, meaning that it is of no use to me when I compare what I used to have and what I used to be now with what I have and what I am in Christ. And I think that's interesting because one of the things that we want to be able to do as we walk with the Lord is be able to constantly measure where we are now with what God has brought us out of. I am a firm believer that though the devil may try to throw your past up in your face, and though those who knew you when will say, I knew you when, I have learned to say, this is my testimony now, and yes, I knew myself when too. And look at the transforming work that God is doing. When is past tense. And, 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 and yes, that's my history. I'm not proud of it, but it is what it is. But also, I have a present, and my present is distinctive from my past. It doesn't mean that my present is perfect, but it means that I can look back there and measure from there to here and see the progress that I have made. And so as you Learn to walk with the Lord. Don't forget about your past. Now, don't let the enemy use it to depress you. Don't allow others to use it to hold you in bondage. Own it for what it is. Yes, that is what I used to be. And the truth be told, I still struggle with some issues today. But the grace of God that met me there is with me now, and to use your terminology, will bring me to where he wants me to be. All right, so he says, now I count those things as loss in order that I may uh, understand and approach uh, all that Christ has with me, in me. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 16. Now he says, now let me tell you where I am. Now he says, now my goal is Christ-likeness. I am progressing in that vein, okay? And so he says there in verses 10 through 11, or 10, 11, and 12, he says, now, I haven't attained it yet, but I am on my way. 
You and I, as long as we are on this side of the grave, are always en route. We have never arrived. We are always becoming. God is shaping and molding. He is crafting. He is, we are in his workshop. And he is doing some sanding. He is doing some pruning. He is doing some filing. He is doing some cutting. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. And when the pain comes, when the discomfort comes, don't be afraid to holler out. Because God is busy shaping us into the likeness of his son. In Romans chapter 8, the verse that we love so well, verse 28, is is followed by verse 29. We know verse 28 backwards and forwards. God works all things. Yeah, we know that verse. But if we keep reading, he talks about those whom he has called, he has predestined that they be conformed to the image of his son. And conformity is a painful process. It is an arduous process. It is a process of tears and laughter. It is a process sometimes of sleepless nights and joyous days. But God is busy shaping and molding, crafting. It's almost like if some of you who spend time uh, in the kitchen like I do, you know, sometime, one, sometime I spend time in the kitchen and sometime I'm there making cinnamon rolls. And uh, from starting from scratch, you know, getting uh, the flour, getting the yeast at the right temperature, getting the eggs, getting the butter, getting, uh, getting it all mixed together. And there's a process that is called what? Kneading. Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. And, and I'm sure if the flour had a voice, the flower would say, not so hard, ouch. But, 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 but if I don't need the flower, then the dough will not rise like I want it to. And I want it to rise so that it's fluffy. And so you know the process. You knead it and you put it in the bowl. And you let it sit until it uh, increases double in size. You got to have the right temperature and you can't have a lot of disturbance in the house or in the kitchen because if there's too much vibration or too much disturbance, it'll fall. I see you waving your hand. We're on the same page. And so we, what do we do? After it rises, what do we do? We take it out of the bowl and we knead it again and we roll it out and we sprinkle the sugar and the cinnamon mixture on top of the dough that has been glazed with butter. Yeah. And we roll it nice and tight and we get a knife and we slice it. Yes, we do. And then we get our pan and we grease that pan. And what do we do? We put the cut flour into the pan or the cut dough into the pan. And what do we do? We let it rise again. And when it gets to the right height, it goes in the oven and we bake it for X number of minutes and we take it out and let it sit. And then we glaze it with our icing. That's an arduous process, but it's needful in order for the end product to come out as the baker desires. Where am I going with that? You and I are in God's kitchen, if you will. 
Yeah. And he's kneading and he's cutting and he's glazing. Yes, he is. Oh, yeah. I feel my help now. And, 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 and he puts us in the bowl and let us rise a little bit. Yeah. And then he takes us back out. What does he do? And he kneads us again. And, and then he gets his knife and slices and puts that dough into the pan. And it talks about that. He puts it in the fire. And then what does it come out? It comes out as a trophy of his grace. And that's what God is busy doing. And so what Paul is saying here, I'm not there yet, but God is working on me. So what does he do? He talks about this example. And then he says, now, I press on toward the mark. He says in verse 15, let us therefore, you who have the same mindset, let us be of the same mindset. Now, our text says, he says now in verse 17, brother, join in following my example. What is the example that he's talking about? The example that he's talking about is what he has previously said when he says, I press on toward the mark. And so he likens it to a race. That's another metaphor that he uses, uses the imagery of the culture in which the people live, okay? And so he says, I press on. How many of you here are really pressing on? How many of you here have the same mindset and are following Paul's example? Now, now the danger is, is to start using others as a wrong examples and taking our cues from individuals who sound appealing but are not consistent with the truth revealed in God's word. And so he says right here, join in following my example and exert those or mark those who walk according to the pattern that you've seen in us. And so what is, what, what is that instructing us to do? That means that we have to have eyes that see and minds that comprehend to be able to distinguish between good, productive examples and those that look good and smell good but are worth nothing. Yeah, they may, they may look good. They may sound good. They may act good. But if you watch them long enough, the truth will eventually be revealed. I liken this, I liken this to when I do um, relationship counseling. And when I sit down and talk with individuals who are um, engaging in relationships and they have a certain one who they are interested in. And one of the things that I, con- I tell them to concentrate on is this, just concentrate on being a good friend and spend time with the individual. And the reason why I say this is because I tell them, I said, listen, all of us are on our best behavior when we are entering a relationship. Let's just keep it real. You know, we're talking proper. We're walking proper. We're acting proper. When we go out to, to eat the restaurant, we fold the napkin neatly over our nap. Yes, we do. We order something light on the meal because we don't want them to think that we have a greedy appetite. Brothers have the hair cut just right. 
cologne on just right, stride just right, and we're trying to put on our best behavior. But one of the things that I tell people, just keep on watching, just keep on observing. Why? Because eventually Jack or Jacqueline is coming out of the box and you will find out who they really are. The same principle applies right here. When we are observing others, you observe them in a multitude of experiences and example, and you will find out really what they are made of. And it says you got, you got to observe, you got to watch, you got to look with the, with the intent of taking it all in, or as I often say, paying attention to the details. My wife and I were talking about this a few days ago because it was something she was talking about as far as trying to find something. I said, dear, you got to pay attention to the details. You know, she rolled her eyes. and I said, no, no, no. I didn't say roll your eyes. I said pay attention to the details because what you are saying is not there. You will see that it is there if you pay attention to the details. She let out a sigh and said, oh, there it is. You see what I'm talking about? Pay attention. And I drew an analogy because she's a musician. And I said, just like you know the beat, the note, the length of the note, quarter note, half note, full note, just like you know about octaves, sharps, and majors, and flats, if I just look at a sheet of music, I may not pick that up. But because you are trained in music, you know the details. And the same details that you find in music, you'll find right here if you just slow down and pay attention to the details. Where am I going with this? We can tell who's who and what's what. We can tell who is worth following and who is worth discarding if we simply pay attention to the details. And so Paul says right here, observe those, verse 17 observe those who walk according to the pattern or the example that you have seen in us. Another object lesson that I want to give you, not only did I spend time in cooking, but I spent time tailoring clothes. And I remember the day when you could go down to the garment store and you could buy X number of yards of material and get your pattern, whether it was Butterick or Simplicity or McCall's or some of the other patterns, and you would take it out and you would lay it on top of the garment and you would pin it there and then you would get your pinking shears and cut around and then you would uh, pin it together and then this is back when Singer came out with the zigzag sewing machine, which was supposedly the top of the line sewing machine. And as long as I followed the pattern, the garment came out looking like it was on the cover. But if I got distracted and if I missed a dart here or a hem there or a tuck there, the garment wouldn't look like it was supposed to look. You got to pay attention to the details. And so what Paul is telling his believers, his Christian friends, 
in Philippi, when you look at the example, pay attention to the detail. The image there is that of an image that has been impressed with the striking of a hammer. Almost like what we do when we mint coins. The coin goes into a press. And after it is compressed, it bears the image of what was in the die. The die is what transfers the image to the coin. The die is already there for the metal to be stamped into its form. And so what Paul is saying here, as he talks about, mark those who walk according to our example, check us out, and if, and if they walk according as we walk, then they're worth following. In the preceding verse, in verse 16, he says, let us keep living by the same standard, the standard of pressing on toward the mark of the high calling that is found in Christ Jesus. A standard of owning our past, but not letting our past handcuff us. A standard of looking how God is leading and guiding us. A standard that is drawing us closer to Christ every day. A standard where we are shaping and yielding our attitude, our disposition, our bodies all over to the Lordship of Christ. That's the standard. And he says, if those, if others who you see around you are not in compliance with the standard, then you have to make a decision if they are worth following or not. But it's not just in things that are theological per se. It's in things that are secular as well. Because if we are measuring our life by this book, this book will, it will influence my understanding of politics. This book will understand my, will influence my understanding of education, of child rearing, of relationships, of how I interact with my neighbor, even how I drive my car down the road. If I am conforming myself to the image of Christ, this book will be my guide. And if it is my guide, then I know there are some junk philosophies out there that may sound good, but do not measure up to the standard of God's word. So he says here, so he says here, this is how I want you to walk. This is the pattern. Now, verses 18 and 19, if you're reading from the King James, are a parenthetical statement. The verses are in parentheses. Because he's using it as an example of those who are not worthy of following. Okay? And so in verses 18 and 19, he says, for many walk. All right? And so what he's saying, that there are a lot of people out there in Philippi. Philippi was known for its itinerant pastors and preachers who would come by and preach and then leave. And oftentimes what they preach and their lifestyle, there was incongruence or there was contradiction. And so what Paul is saying here, you are used to seeing many roll through the colony of Philippi proclaiming to be God's servants. But when you examine their lifestyle, their lifestyle is inconsistent with the message that they preach. And so he's saying there and he's saying to us, there are many that are out there. 
many churches that are out there, many so-called leaders that are out there, many pastors that are out there, many friends and people that are out there who say they love the Lord, who say they following Jesus, who say they know the word of God. But when you hear what they say and how they live, you discover there is a disconnect between what you see and what you have read. And so Paul is saying here, as you observe, be aware that not everybody out there is going to be a positive influence on how you should walk. And so he says, verses 8 and 9, for many walk, as I've often told you, <clears throat> and I now tell you again, weeping, that they are enemies of the cross. Enemies being they their lifestyle is of such that it refutes or contradicts conformity to the cross and conformity to being a follower of Jesus. And the examples that he gives there is consistent with those in Greek culture who believed in the satisfaction of the flesh was all that mattered. There's a distinction between this group and the group that he mentions in verses 2 and 3. Because in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3, he talks about beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Now there he's pointing to Jewish false teachers that were uh, alluring people to come back into Judaism, which was more strict, rigid, and legalistic. In the verses 18 and 19, it's not about legalism. It's about licentiousness where there are no bounds. There are no rules. You just live like you want to live. It reminds me of the of the song way back in the day that Isaac used to sing, if the move music makes you groove, what? Groove on, okay? And so the idea is that there are no limits. I know some of you know who Isaac is. I'm not the only one who used, who used to listen. Now, come on now, walk with me now. Uh, and so there is no, uh, no restrictions. Almost uh, the idea is this. Whatever melts your butter and pops your corn and floats your boat, go ahead and do it because you cannot do anything wrong to the body, which was a contradictory to what God called his people to be, but it was consistent with the attitude found within Greco-Roman culture, because within Greco-Roman culture, there was the idea of wanton licentiousness, orgies, indulgence, and everything is as a regular way of life. And so Paul talks about, Paul talks about this, and he says, now, there are others out there that you are going to have to watch, all right? Now, what does he do? After he makes his parenthetical statement, as I hurry on to a close, after he makes his parenthetical statement, he comes back in verse 20 and 21 to what he initiated in verse 17, okay? And so he says in verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have seen in us. That's the end of verse 17. 
Then he makes the parenthetical statement in verses 18 and 19, and then he comes back to his original thought in verse number 20. He says, why do you want to imitate us and following our example? He says, why? Because our citizenship, where? Is in heaven. Heaven is in the plural tense in the Greek, and so he is saying our citizenship is actually in the heavens. All right, now what is he doing? He's making a play on words that we miss in our English translation, but that would have surely clicked in the ears of his hearer. Philippi was a colony in Macedonia. Macedonia was not in Rome. Macedonia was far from Rome, but everybody in Philippi, because it was a Roman colony, had all the rights and citizenships of Rome, even though they were not living, physically located in Rome. All right? And so when he, when he talks about citizenship, he is saying all the rights, all the privileges, Everything that is connected to your citizenship in Philippi is because you are a citizen of Rome, though physically your feet are not located in Rome, you still enjoy all the benefits as if your feet were located in Rome, even though you are residing in Philippi. Okay, come on with me now. I'm going somewhere. He said, now, now how does that apply to us? Even though our feet are not physically located in heaven. All right. We are still located on planet earth, but we have all the rights and privilege of our heavenly citizenship even while we reside here on earth. What did Paul say in the book of Ephesians? We are seated in the heavenly places right now with Christ. Okay? Another location, you talk about our citizenship in your King James Version, it says our conversation is in heaven. It's the same English word where we get our, same Greek word where we get our English word politics from. And so he says, though you are, though you are governed by the politics of Rome, because you are a citizen of Rome, even while you are in Philippi. So we are governed by the politics of glory, even though we still reside on planet Earth. We are God's redeemed children while we reside on planet Earth. We are saved by grace, even though we reside on planet Earth. We are filled with his spirit, even though we reside on planet earth, we are the children, redeemed children of the king who sits on the throne in heaven, even though we reside on planet earth. And so he says here now, he says not only that our citizenship is in heaven, and then he goes on and he says, from whom we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses a verb, he uses a verb there, eagerly wait. The image is, maybe you've experienced this, I know I have. You go to the bus station. You go to the train station. You go to the airport. With the intent on picking up a relative or a close friend. 
whom you have not seen for a while. But they told you that I'll be in uh, bus number, whatever time, train number, whatever time, flight number, whatever time. And so you go to the bus station. You go to the uh, train station. You go to the airport. And you see people disembarking. And, and, and you're straining like this. Wondering, will I, I'm, when am I going to see them? And you're looking left and you're looking right. And you, and you see somebody, oh, that looks like them, but that's not them. And, and you're just there doing this. And then finally you see them. Yeah. And a smile comes on your face. And there he is or there she is. And you run and greet and embrace. That's the same imagery here when he says, eagerly wait. We don't know when he's coming, but we know that he is coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know when he's going to park the clouds, but we know that he is going to park the clouds. It may be tomorrow. It may be next week, next month, next decade, but we are earnestly waiting. Tiptoe anticipation looking left, looking right, waiting for our Savior. He says we eagerly wait. But then there's another play on words in the text where he says in verse 20, not only are we eagerly waiting, not only is our citizenship in heaven, but also he identifies who the Savior is. Why is that important? Because the word Savior in the original hearer's context would have spoken as to who was the emperor at the time in Rome. Now that's foreign to us. Sometimes. That's foreign to us. And why do I say sometimes? Because depending on who is occupying 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, we often may see him as a savior. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Look at how hard we campaign for them and and how they can tell us almost anything just reheated over and over again. And we follow blindly as if the answer to all of our problems lands on Air Force One at Edwards Air Force Base and drives to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, we we, we won't call him Lord and Savior with our lips. But our attitude indicates that we have oftentimes more faith in him than we have in the God who rules heaven and earth. I know you may not like that, but you don't have to invite me back. And I'm not running for office. I'm just talking about what I'm talking about. And so he says right here, there's a play on words because there were many in Rome who looked at Caesar as Savior and Lord. There was Caesar worship in the phrase, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And many of the believers went to death because they would only say, Christo Curios, Christ is Lord. And so Paul is saying here that, yes, Caesar may be on the throne, but he ain't coming from heaven. Caesar may be given dictates and rules, but he is not the ultimate savior. The ultimate Savior, who is he? He identifies him, and he says, Christ Jesus the Lord. And so I ask you today, what Savior are you looking for? 
Are you looking for the current occupant, Joe Biden, as your savior? Even though, then, and then the question is, if you say no, then why did you vote for him? <laughs> oh, that's cold-blooded, isn't it? I'm not saying, I'm not saying you, I'm just saying the, the uh, corporate you. If you think your savior was the, our previous president, Donald J. Trump, and you say no, then why did you vote for him? If you think that your savior was the previous before him, Barack Hussein Obama, then why did you vote for him? And why was your chest so stuck out every time you heard his name? You see, sometimes we put more of adoration and praise and accolades and throwing uh, praise at who we see rather than the one who we claim we're waiting for who will part the clouds and take us back to be with them. Okay, so what are we looking for? The same principle in verse 17, where he says, observe and imitate me, is found in verse 20. Because as we eagerly wait, it also has the connotation of observing, so we will recognize he who is true and the one who is a counterfeit. Some of us are old enough to remember uh, the incident that happened in Waco, Texas, uh, David Koresh. And there were some who saying he is Jesus manifested in the flesh. Some of us are old enough to remember Father Divine. And, and, And a lot of our people looked at him as Savior. Some of us are old enough to remember Daddy Grace. And some of us looked at him as Savior. Some of us are old enough to remember Reverend Ike. And some of us looked at him as Savior. Some of us are old enough to remember Jim Jones. And many of us looked at him as Savior. Even though none of them met the profile that the Word of God gives as the one who comes and is our Savior. Listen, they weren't born in Bethlehem. They weren't reared in Nazareth. They didn't baptize in the, were not baptized in the Jordan. They didn't perform miracles in a desert place. They didn't weep over Jerusalem. They didn't pray in Gethsemane. And still we want to say that they are the one who we've been looking for. So he says, so he says here now, we eagerly wait for a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he is so bad, if you let me use that term, bad in the good context. He is so on point and he is so powerful that what is he going to do when he comes? He is going to transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with his body. He says he's going to make us look like him. He's going to make us appear similar to him. John picks it up in his letter and he says, behold, John, 1 John chapter 3, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And then he goes on and he says, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, what? We shall see him as he is and we will what? Be like him. Have you ever spent the time taking 
inventory of what your redeemed, resurrected body will look like. Have you ever taken the time to consider that Jesus' body post-resurrection is a prototype of how our bodies will function? Have you ever taken the time to consider what Paul has said in 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, how it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in mortality, it is raised in immortality. It is sown a body of flesh, it is raised a spiritual body. Have you taken the time to consider what he said to the church at Thessalonica that Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died in Christ and our bodies will be transformed to be like his body and they will no longer be subject to sickness, death, decay, or pain. He says he will transform the body of our humble state in conformity with the body of his glory. How's he going to do it? He says that the same by the exertion of power by which he has, he is able to subject all things. You talk about ultimate power. He is able to bring to bear. In another passage, it says that the same power that God exerted on Jesus to raise him from the dead. It's the same power that resides and God will exert upon us to transform us from the physical to the spiritual. What kind of power did it take to raise Jesus from the dead? Power that refuted death. Power that caused men to marvel. Power that caused him to stand on the earth and say, I am he that was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That kind of power. Power that overcame, the, that overcame the grave. Grave that was not impressed with the lyrical poetry of David, nor the tears of Jeremiah, nor the humility of Moses. All held those three, but God's power, when he exerted upon Jesus, he shook himself and came out. Same power. And he says, now, after you have taken all of this in consideration, he says in verse number one of chapter four, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, who I long to see, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. And it's in the present active tense, which means that they were already standing firm. And so he is exhorting them or encouraging them to keep on standing firm. And so all I have to say to you, Transforming Love a Christian Center, is keep on standing firm. Yes, the battle gets fierce, but keep on standing firm. Yes, the tears may fall sometimes, but keep on standing firm. Yes, it appears that the foundations are crumbling, but keep on standing firm. Even if you have to walk alone, keep on standing firm. Even if there are tears on your pillow at night, keep on standing firm. Chaos in your home, confusion on your job, keep on standing firm. And keep on looking, eagerly awaiting. 
for that Savior. While you stand firm, keep on looking. Keep on pressing. Keep on conforming. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Don't throw in the towel. Stand firm. Don't wave the white flag. Stand firm. Don't go back. Stand firm. Follow his example. And if you follow his example and keep on eagerly waiting, look at your watch. When is he coming? But keep on waiting. Well, is he coming tomorrow? I don't know. Keep on waiting. I'm going to keep on living like he wants me to live. But I'm going to keep on waiting. And I'm not going to let nobody. I know that's bad English. I'm not going to let anybody dissuade me from keep on watching. Standing firm. Holding on. That's the old gospel song. I'm just holding on. And I ain't going to let go of my faith. So just keep on holding on. Keep on holding on. I feel pretty good. We got to close, I know. But just keep on standing firm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have spoken to us by your spirit. Thank you for the example that the Apostle Paul gives us by saying he's pressing on. Lord, may we have the same attitude. We're pressing on. We're pressing on toward the mark of the prize of the high calling. That's in Christ Jesus. Father, we're going to follow the example that you gave for us. And even when we stumble and fall, help us to hear your voice and we confess our sins. You are faithful. You are just to forgive us our sins. And to put us back in the race, heading on toward the prize. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for all that you've done for us in Christ. We wait for your return. Eagerly waiting. On our tiptoe. Neck stretched, chest pressed out. Lord, we're waiting. In faith. Believing that your word is true that you're coming back. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Transforming Love Community Church. I believe you're able to get a um, review the sermon and the service online at transformingloveCC.org. And until we meet again, just keep standing firm. Keep pressing on. The upward way. New heights gain every day. Still praying as I onward bow. Lord, plant my feet. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.